Had an alien observer been watching the space surrounding the Earth in June of 1965, they may have bore witness to a strange and assuredly fascinating sight. A lone human spacecraft zipping around the Earth, which would certainly look like little more than a flying tin can to our alien explorer. But suddenly, a door opens on the outside, and a gangly human figure clad in a bright white suit and reflective visor clambers out into the open void. After floating around for a bit, the suited figure begins to twist, turn, and cavort in the weightlessness, eventually turning somersaults as a silhouette against the bright marble below. Maybe that alien watcher would be charmed, perhaps intrigued, or maybe it would just write off our species as a band of primitives of questionable sanity. Well, either way, Edward White was having the time of his life. Welcome to episode 25 of Frontier of Infinity, To Kiss the Void. In the last episode, we discussed the first crewed mission of Project Gemini, dubbed Gemini 3, which carried John Young and Gus Grissom into orbit aboard the new Gemini capsule. The mission was a success, and the next chapter in American manned spaceflight had begun. But now it was time to up the stakes and the reward. The Gemini capsule had proven itself. Now it was time to get to work pushing the envelope. A mere one week after Grissom and Young's successful flight on Gemini 3, the Soviets took the world by surprise once again. Voshod 2 had flown, and using a new innovation an inflatable airlock mounted to the outside, a Soviet cosmonaut had left his capsule and floated freely in space in nothing but a pressure suit. His name was Alexei Leonov, and he was the first human to do such a thing. We covered this mission in greater detail in our episode entitled Voshod, but the short version is this. The flight of Voshod 2 was a near disaster for multiple causes. First, Leonov was barely able to get back inside his capsule after his spacewalk because his suit had inflated during the EVA. He managed it, but was exhausted afterwards. Then, a malfunction in the navigation system saw the two cosmonauts on board have to recalculate their reentry sequence. The capsule crash-landed in a stretch of isolated wilderness, requiring both cosmonauts to hunker down in their capsule until they could be rescued. In short, it was just barely a success, but it resulted in the cancellation of all the remaining planned Voshod flights. Thus ended the Voshod program and the second phase of Soviet crewed spaceflight. Of course, the rest of the world didn't get to know the truth of just how harrowing the flight of Voshod 2 had been. The Soviets presented the flight to the wider world as a resounding success, 
and a clear indication of their superiority in space. The truth wouldn't be revealed until decades later. But regardless of what was true, Voshod II lit a fresh fire under NASA to carry out an EVA of their own. That goal was to be met by the next Gemini flight. Gemini 4. An EVA, or spacewalk, was not the original plan for Gemini 4, however. It was supposed to be a four-day mission, twice the length of any previous American flights. But there had been some issues with the fuel cells that provided electrical power to the spacecraft. This meant that the flight would have to rely on batteries, and thus would need to be less electrically demanding than it otherwise would need to be using the fuel cells. On July 27, 1964, the crews for Gemini 4 were announced. The primary crew was comprised of Jim McDivitt and Ed White, with a backup crew of Frank Borman and James Lovell. This would be the first American mission flown without a single member of the Mercury 7 on board. Frank Borman was born in Gary, Indiana but had been raised in Tucson, Arizona, where he earned a pilot's license at the age of just 15. He later attended West Point and received a degree in aeronautical engineering from the California Institute of Technology in 1957. After leaving West Point, he joined the Air Force, where he served as a pilot at air bases in both the U.S. and the Philippines. Come 1957, he served as an assistant professor of fluid mechanics and thermodynamics at the United States Military Academy, and then went on to complete research pilot training before he was selected as an astronaut. Edward H. White II was a son of San Antonio, Texas, and an army child, living out his early days on and around a variety of military installations. He would later go on to achieve a degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Michigan and would put it to use in the Air Force flying fighter jets in Germany before he trained to be a test pilot. In 1962, White was selected as an astronaut, and he joined the Gemini 9, the second generation of American spacefarers. Though an EVA had not been the original plan for Gemini 4, it became the main goal following Leonov's spacewalk. It was announced that Edward White would be granted the honor of being the first American to walk in space. And what was more, he would make use of a specially designed thrust pistol to control his attitude while outside the spacecraft. Some voices in the press called out NASA for making a naked attempt to play catch-up with the Soviets, but this was not entirely justified. An EVA had been a long-term goal for Project Gemini from the very beginning. All that had been done was to move that goal up in the schedule. In January of 1964, a contract was awarded to a company called the Air Research Manufacturing Company for a life support system that could be added to a spacesuit capable of keeping an astronaut alive in space separate from the capsule. The David Clark Company, meanwhile, were working on a spacesuit specifically designed for EVA. In addition to these two projects, 
a third related project was also in development. The handheld maneuvering unit was a somewhat cumbersome device which an astronaut could hold in one hand. It was loaded with pressurized oxygen which could be released in controlled bursts to provide small amounts of thrust, just enough to move away and back toward the capsule while outside. The astronauts, however, were not overly thrilled with the machine's long name and opted instead to call it the Zip Gun. But the EVA was not the only goal for the mission. It would also serve as an experiment in orbital rendezvous. The first plan was to launch a separate satellite which would serve as a rendezvous target, but this was scrapped in favor of the simpler solution of merely using the burnt-out second stage of the Titan rocket that would propel the capsule into orbit. It would be nearby already and on a nearly identical flight path so locating and following it would be simple. When Gemini 4 launched after a few delays on the pad, it was viewed live by millions all over the world. For the first time, the feed from the Cape was beamed via satellite to Europe, so the denizens of that continent could share in the excitement. A flawless launch sequence played out, and five and a half minutes after leaving the pad, Gemini 4 was in a stable orbit over a hundred miles above the Earth's surface. As soon as the capsule was free from the booster, astronaut McDivitt spun it around to spot the spent second stage trailing behind the spacecraft. He was able to find it easily enough, but something wasn't quite right. It was venting gas, and a stream of fuel was spewing out into space. Neither McDivitt nor White could properly tell in which direction it was moving, and their distance estimates weren't exactly in line with one another. McDivitt braked the capsule in an effort to bleed off some speed and allow the spent stage to approach them, but it didn't seem to move any closer. It was, in fact, moving away from them, and now it was also becoming clear that it was drifting down and away. After a few more course corrections, McDivitt failed to bring the capsule nearer to the stage. It was still drifting away from them. As both capsule and stage strayed into the night side of the Earth, the stage continued to drift. McDivitt simply could not move the capsule closer, and once they re-emerged into the sunlight, the problem persisted. In fact, it was revealed to be worse than the crew had expected. The stage was now at least two miles away. Judging its position in the dark had been difficult, and led to some inaccurate estimates. The cause of this issue was simply orbital mechanics and the counterintuitive manner in which objects behave when in orbit. Our brains, having evolved on the Earth's surface, are not well-suited to intuitively thinking about how objects behave in orbit. Under such conditions, some strange paradoxes arise regarding motion. If two objects start at the same altitude and the same speed, but one of them fires its thrusters to speed up, it will climb into a higher orbit. It's traveling faster, but now has further to go thus slowing it relative to the object that maintained a steady speed. 
This is because the faster object's orbital period has increased. It has further to travel than the slower object moving lower. It's roughly equivalent to running around the innermost lane on a running track, as opposed to the outermost lane. In the case of Gemini 4, accelerating toward the target was the wrong move. Counterintuitively, they should have accelerated away from it. But there was now no chance of catching the spent stage. Oh well, lesson learned both by the astronauts on board the spacecraft, as well as the controllers on the ground. Space is a strange place to those who are used to walking on a planet. It takes time and experience to get used to operating there. But catching the spent stage was only one part of the mission anyway. There was a more important job still ahead. Ed White, thus far, had spent most of the flight helping McDivitt try to catch the wayward target stage. But now it was time for him to make ready for his EVA. He got his equipment ready, attached his safety line appropriately, and prepared to leave the capsule. But just making those preparations seemed to tire him. McDivitt could see that White was already fatigued and overheated. So he made a call down to the ground, informing them that they were going to postpone the EVA by one orbital cycle. That would give White a chance to rest and prepare mentally for the task to come. They were over the Indian Ocean when the EVA finally went through. White was properly suited and lifelined to the capsule. He had his emergency oxygen supply hooked to his suit and the zip gun in hand. He was ready to go. The cabin pressure was systematically dropped, and then White moved to open the hatch over his head. Only, it didn't open right away. After a few moments spent pushing and straining, it finally gave way, and the cabin was exposed to the hard vacuum outside. White made sure his camera was properly positioned before he allowed himself to float up out of his seat. Once he was up high enough, he used the zip gun to push himself a little higher until he was outside the hatch. For the second time in human history, one of our own was free-floating in outer space. Once he was free of the capsule, White experimented with the zip gun, rolling, yawing, and pitching. But he realized pretty quickly that such maneuvers consumed fuel at a rather high rate. He then took to tugging on his lifeline instead to change his position. When holding still and not doing anything, White reported that he was assailed by the sensation of moving along all three axes at once. But he resisted the urge to use the zip gun to compensate for fear of burning through its fuel too quickly. He did, however, make two somersaults and two full spins, able to control his movement with surprising accuracy using the zip gun. But after these moves, there was no more oxygen left in the gun, and White was left wishing that there had been more in reserve. A routine communications interruption had left McDivitt and White with some privacy as White cavorted outside the capsule. But once they were back within radio range, flight director Chris Kraft demanded that White return to the capsule. When White heard the order, he sighed, 
and the next words he spoke were broadcast by radio all over the world. Quote, This is the saddest moment of my life. End quote. By the time he made it back into the spacecraft, and all of his gear was disconnected and properly stowed, both White and McDivitt were exhausted. With the hatch shut and secured, they both took a while to rest before continuing on with the mission. From the moment the hatch was opened to the moment it was closed, the capsule had nearly made an entire revolution around the Earth. As White was regaining his strength, McDivitt took some time to shut off a few of the capsule's non-essential systems to conserve electricity. The idea was that the capsule would essentially free-drift for the next few hours, and each of the astronauts would attempt to sleep. The plan was that the two astronauts would sleep in shifts so that one of them would be on duty at all times. But this proved folly. There was simply too much noise in the cabin between the chatter on the radio, the bursts from the maneuvering thrusters, and the general clatter of the spacecraft to make sleep viable. There were also experiments in mission management playing out on the ground. Since this was NASA's first long-endurance mission, it required multiple shifts of controllers to rotate in on the ground. This was another critical aspect of mission design that would be necessary to master for future flights. And on Gemini 4, the performance left much to be desired. Three shifts of controllers were on call. The first led by Chris Kraft, the second by Gene Krantz, and the third by John Hodge. Constant communications between the capsule and the ground kept the astronauts awake, but it served as a learning experience for everyone involved. After three days in orbit, the capsule's onboard computer suddenly stopped working. This was a problem, obviously, but it was one that could be surmounted. The re-entry sequence would need to be adjusted, falling more in line with the re-entries that had been completed during the Mercury days. It would be a rolling re-entry, during which the capsule would continually rotate around its long axis, a method of flight illustratively dubbed barbecue mode. 97 hours into the flight, McDivitt and White fired the maneuvering thrusters and started down toward the ground releasing the capsule's equipment adapter before firing the retro rockets. Despite the computer difficulty, they had a fairly normal re-entry. In spite of the spin of the capsule, they had no vision or breathing problems and were able to communicate with each other on their way down. The chutes deployed and the capsule slumped into the ocean, both astronauts managing to avoid the fate that had befallen Grissom and Young when their helmets slammed into the window before them. They came down about 50 miles off target, but the aircraft carrier USS Wasp was nearby, and the two astronauts were recovered without difficulty. The medical exam they suffered after recovery revealed that four days in microgravity had done little to affect their physicalities. Both men were exhausted, but that was more the result of their having slept hardly at all in the past four days than any effect from microgravity. All in all, it was a successful mission, and it opened the door to even longer and more complex flights. Though certain aspects of the flight left much room for improvement, 
the failed rendezvous, the sleeping arrangements, and the interplay between ground control and the flight, most notably, it was still a far smoother flight than Voshod 2 had been, demonstrating the advantages that NASA had accrued throughout their long research and development process. It took much longer for Gemini to spin up and make ready to fly. But now that it was underway, there was nothing stopping NASA from aiming higher and higher for their next spate of flights. When we speak next, we'll cover the next flight of Project Gemini and continue forward on the road to Apollo. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. <laughs>